Welcome to Oh My Dollar, a personal finance show with a dash of glitter. Dealing with money can be scary and stressful. Here we give practical, friendly advice about money that helps you tackle the financial overwhelm. I'm your host, Lillian Carebake, and your producer is Will Romy. Let's talk about money. So this week is Mother's Day in the U.S., and we thought for this week we'd celebrate some mothers in history who made a difference in the world of finance. To do this, we're inviting on Jason Porath, the author and illustrator of Tough Mothers, amazing stories of history's mightiest matriarchs, to talk about some historically fierce, financially savvy mothers. He will also share stories of moving to a career as an artist despite no formal training and what that looks like for his personal finance. In a past life, Jason Porath used to work on animated movies such as How to Train Your Dragon 2, The Croods, and Kung Fu Panda 2. Upon leaving the animation industry, he started Rejected Princesses, a blog celebrating women of history and myth who were too awesome, awful, or offbeat for the animated princess treatment. It went viral. There's a book, and his most recent book about the coolest mothers in history is called Tough Mothers. Jason lived in Los Angeles enjoys exploring abandoned buildings, and sings a lot of karaoke. Jason, I'm so happy to have you on. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So your book is awesome. I, it's hard to convey on the radio, but it's beautifully illustrated. It's a, oh, a bunch of really awesome actual historical figures animated kind of in the Disney princess style. And it's just packed with stories of amazing women that we don't hear about enough. I'd love to hear about some of the kind of financially savvy women in your book. Uh, is there anyone that stands out to you? Um, I think Madam C.J. Walker is definitely high up there. Madam C.J. Walker is uh, largely billed as uh, America's first made female mi- millionaire. That's actually technically inaccurate. Uh, she ended up with uh, $600,000 around about at the end of her life. But if you convert it to modern day dollars, she's well over a million. So let's just give it to her. Real interesting human being. She's uh, a black woman who was brought up as a, a laundress in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, I want to say. Desperately poor, didn't really have a lot of prospects, but sort of went into business for herself. Uh, was a, a single mother, basically did not want the same life for her child. So sort of leaning on uh, the church that she was a part of, the AME church, she put herself through night classes, uh, ended up uh, starting this uh, hair care empire that just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and became this enormous force uh, sort of all throughout the, uh, the, especially the southern U.S. And, and the Midwest. She was headquartered multiple places, but mostly Indianapolis is, I think, where, where uh, people point to for her. Her daughter ended up becoming uh, one of the uh, scions of the uh, Harlem, Harlem Renaissance. She was just a a hugely important figure uh, for the time, uh, was one of like the leading sort of black luminaries, died uh, right before, I think, uh, the, the uh, Great Depression. And uh, afterwards, a lot of that kind of her wealth was unfortunately mismanaged and a lot of her, her legacy kind of went away. But um, she's a, just a, an enormously interesting human being. Just her relationship with her daughter alone is like, you know, worthy of a book. It's interesting because we don't hear a lot about black women for their entrepreneurial fortitude, especially at that time in in American history. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of in the Reconstruction era. So it's really interesting. And of course, she's a Disney princess in the book. (laughs) Disney princess-esque. I I probably can't say Disney, right? (laughs) 
Yeah, it's 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 that's animated princess style. But the the whole idea is that there's there's something that's almost like a little uncomfortable about them. Like all the the Disney princesses, about the the most damning thing you could say about any of them is that like maybe they're clumsy like they, they don't have a whole lot of glaring character flaws whereas i try and represent all the the good the bad and the ugly of them so like cj walker was a, a great businesswoman and like had a real hot cold very difficult relationship with everyone around her especially her daughter uh, they, they would like fight terribly and then let make up later and and she's just a she's a complicated figure, I think, modern day black Americans, because in the 70s, she was sort of painted as this figure who advocated a hair straightening, which was sort of not only fallen out of favor, but kind of been denigrated as bringing down faith in your own natural beauty. There's evidence that like she didn't really advocate it that much. It was just a, a line that if you're in beauty at that time, you kind of needed to cater to. But people in the 70s sort of mischaracterized her as that, I would argue. She's got a really complicated legacy, especially nowadays. Some people really don't like her. Uh, Some people are trying to rehabilitate her legacy. It's really complicated. And that's a lot of what I write about is complicated people. Uh, Yeah, another complicated person in the book is uh, a Portlander, uh, Mary Equi. Uh, I think it's pronounced Marie Aki. Mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure. I've only seen it uh, written down. But I get this lesbian Wild West abortion doctor. Whoa. That is <laughs> never going to make it into an animated film. Yeah. Oh, my God. She she had a life. She was uh, jailed for sedition in San Quentin for protesting around uh, World War One. She was a lover of Margaret Sanger. Just a real, real fascinating human being who horsewhipped a dude in the face for not paying her then girlfriend uh, a living wage, the superintendent of a school system uh, up up in Portland. And he just refused to pay her her girlfriend slash quasi wife at the time. So she just confronted him uh, like uh, he was uh, staying in his building and a big crowd formed and uh, she was calling him out. Eventually he tried sneaking out the back of the crowd like, held him down, punched him. She horsewhipped him in the face. It was, it was a whole thing. It made the New York times. Like she was, she was very well known. She was labeled the queen of the Bolsheviks, a title that she relished. Wow. Yeah. That is quite the story. So how did you stumble into doing this? How did you stumble into writing stories about these women? Uh, It's complicated. Uh, Like everything. The easy answer is I used to work at DreamWorks Animation, as you said, and uh, when the movie Frozen came out, there was a really terrible clickbait article going around about how the Frozen girls are bad role models. There's like 12 reasons the Frozen girls are bad role models. It was just a nonsense, silly article. I can't even remember the arguments that it made, but it was just, it was kind of nonsense. So my coworkers at the time and I were sitting around at lunch just making fun of this article, and we came across the idea of like, okay, well, if you're going to come up with if they're bad role models, we can come up with way worse ones. What's the worst idea you can come up with for an animated princess movie? And out of that conversation where we're just trying to black humor one-up each other, the worst idea that we were able to come up with was uh, Disney Presents Nabokov's Lolita, um, <laughs> which is a truly horrifying idea. But it was so messed up that I just I wanted it to exist in some form or another. So I illustrated it, but I also had, had tossed out a bunch of ideas at the uh, lunch of people that nobody at the table had ever heard of, which I thought was just a a real shame. I was talking about 
say, Boudicca or Jingam Bande or these historical real badass women figures that at the time I didn't really know a whole lot about. I, I'm a Wikipedia junkie, so I, I knew something, but just what Wikipedia said, which had a lot of errors, it turned out. But I wanted it to exist. So after I left DreamWorks, I, I illustrated like a batch of a, of a dozen of these or so, put it out online, and it went viral in the first week. And I'm like, I guess this is my new job. <laughs> so yeah, you're you're now making your living, you know, doing these rejected princesses as an artist. And you're kind of using a combination of traditional publishing and Patreon, right? Yeah. And But you have no formal training in being an artist. You're just kind of stumbled into this. Oh, you're I'm also, totally self-taught, yeah. <laughs> and you're also an expert at removing genitalia from film for some reason. <laughs> Tell me oh, about your God. path a little bit. That like, how did you how did you end up deciding, like, oh, I guess this is still my job? Uh, as with so many weird decisions in my life, a girl? <laughs> <laughs> I got into visual effects to impress a girl. Uh, it didn't work. But I ended up being real good at it. And ended up uh, just working in visual effects. And then I, I transferred over to animation because the skill set is almost the exact same afterwards. So uh, when you're talking about removing genitals, that refers to one of the earliest things I did in my career is I worked on the, the I mean, statute of limitations is up now. I can just say what it was. Uh, the first Fantastic Four movie. And there was a sequence where they're getting magic space powers from the magic space cloud in space. Ooh. <laughs> there was a green screen shot. There, there, of all the different characters, there was sort of one-on-one green screen shots of them leaning back and like, oh, no, magic space cloud. And we were CGing in the background and the space cloud and everything. And it's supposed to be them you know, where they start getting their powers. And they're on wire harnesses. It's being like, oh. One of the actors had a... For whatever reason, not just wires on his hip, but one on on his butt that was riding up between his legs. I don't know if it was an optical illusion or not, but it appeared that he was quite excited. (laughs) So we were called upon to do tent removal, (laughs) Um, which is a polite euphemism for making him smooth as a Ken doll, which is Uh. what I I was called in to do. So. Normally, this is just sort of painted out like photoshopped, but this was this movie came out in 2005, so we were doing this in 2004, and the, the tech wasn't, it would do okay if it was just like a, 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 the camera didn't move, and you could just sort of like paint over it, and it would just, you'd slap it almost on top of it, and maybe you'd, you'd you know, warp it a little bit with the, the hip movement. So the problem was that there were two different takes of this shot, one where the camera was locked off and the other where the camera was doing this whole like ER style camera move or sort of this 360 like moving around. And the fabric was kind of shimmery, so it would change color a little bit basing on, on the angle to the light. So as, as the camera moved around, it just changed color. So it became evident that it'd be very difficult to paint it out. And they did, we didn't know which version of the shot they were going for. And so I was called into my boss's office and told that I needed to make a three-dimensional ma- model of this man's flaccid crotch <laughs> and track it onto his body. Um, in the end, they ended up going for the, the other shot, the, the one that was easier and cheaper, but I almost had the title of Crotch Wrangler. <laughs> <laughs> so and then you that, moved I, into I princesses. And I, I found out I wasn't the only person in the entire universe to have ever done that. <laughs> and so uh, I became a clearinghouse for a lot of these stories, and I've given talks about it. Um, so if you ever want to know about Dr. Manhattan's uh, genitalia and how they were rigged in computer graphics, the physics of those, or if you want to hear about Beowulf's mom or, or any of that, uh, or how they neutered Air Bud in post, uh, I, can, I can tell you all about it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is just so excellent. So 
<laughs> aside from that, how did you end up deciding you've been doing this for a couple of years now, right? That you've been kind of focusing primarily on, on finding ways to tell these stories of these women. Yeah, I am coming up on year four. I mean, I left DreamWorks and I knew that I wanted to do something creative. I had no idea how I was going to make money on it. And then it went viral and I'm like, well, there's something here. I should be able to make money off of it. And I had saved up enough money before I left DreamWorks. I knew that I was a bad cog for that machine. I, I, I knew that I, I loved working there. I loved all the people there, but I really wanted to be a carpenter and not a, a tool mm-hmm. in someone else's toolbox. So I struck out and I had a bunch of different ideas. I had no idea I was going to make money, but I'd saved up enough for like a year or two of runway, depending on how thrifty I was. Uh, when it went viral, I'm like, I know that this can be something. I, I have faith in this. This is as, as good an exit as I, I could possibly make. So I'm just going to go hard on this and I'm going to learn a lot. I'm going to learn how to draw. I'm going to learn how to write. I'm going to learn how to social media. And maybe this isn't the thing I end up doing five years from now, but I'll learn a lot from it. I think that I can, I can at least make enough money to last another year or so on it. And I got a book deal and it turned out that, yeah, I could. There were a lot of things that I didn't understand about it. The, the book deal, once I, I got it, it, it took another year to get the first installment of four. And the, the, the whole thing was about a, a year's worth of DreamWorks salary spread out over two years, essentially. So it was, it was a lot of really difficult budgeting that I had to uh, put into it. I didn't start the Patreon until like much later. There was a lot of stuff that I, I didn't know how to do. And I, I did a lot of like question mark, question mark, question mark, then step three profits. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I had faith that I could figure it out. And so I just sort of plunged into the unknown, knowing that I had a nest egg there that I could I could live off of for a while while I figured it out. Do you feel pretty confident now that you're four years in about your financial future most of the time? Or does it still kind of feel like an ever shifting world with the way that creative people make kind of a living on the Internet these days? Oh, no, it's an ever-shifting world. I never have any idea. I know, like, the, the most regular thing has been, like, publishing income. Like, I, I, I know from the advance, like, when that's happening, and I can I can plan around that. Occasionally, I can I can plan, okay, here's a, a comic convention, and I'm, I'm confident I can sell X number of books, and that'll be X amount of, of revenue at that point. But I don't necessarily know where there's a lot of... of um, bills that come in that I wasn't prepared for that I didn't know about. I filed an LLC and there's all the LLC fees that I didn't know about. I filing a trademark, I'd get stuff coming in from my lawyer like suddenly I owe, you know, several thousand dollars and that was hard to prepare for. Ramping up a promotion for one of the books uh, and hiring out PR agencies, like knowing the whole PR process for that and how much that would cost and all that totally unknown to me. So prepping for all that, it's it's still a minefield, but I'm getting more regular with it. I Patreon has helped sort of stabilize things a lot. I've been I've opened up my own online store where I can ship out personalized copies of my books, uh, which has been a whole other thing to learn. Is like now I'm I'm like a, a small publisher slash agency. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm a small business here, and like learning all of QuickBooks and everything. It's a lot of different hats to wear. And there's still like an enormous amount of uncertainty. Like I have maybe a year of runway left at this point, and I don't I don't know where. Like I've got some irons and fires that I have to prepare for. Like three different possibilities of like if if Plan A doesn't work this year, then I have to go to Plan B, and if Plan B doesn't work, I have to go to Plan C. 
And that's a little crazy making, yeah. uh, especially financially. You know, I, it's still the life I chose. And I, I, I'm not sure that I would do anything real differently. Like I did, made the best decisions that I could with the knowledge I had at the time. So if you were going to go back now with all the knowledge that you've accumulated in four years of doing this and give advice to someone that's in a similar position, like maybe they've saved a little money and they are about to kind of try to see if they can do this creative thing full time and are leaving their job. Is there any like one piece of advice about finances or about like kind of finding your footing that you would give? Something that was really scary to me that uh, is not so scary now that I've done it and I wish I'd done a little earlier. It's not applicable to everyone, but it, it really helped me was learning to ship my own books and that the whole ecosystem of online advertising and how to make that work and being essentially like a, a small publisher online has helped really keep a lot of the finances more regular. It's terrifying. And I, I completely understand why I, I kind of avoided it for so long. Because <laughs> um, like as someone who didn't, doesn't know a whole lot about it, it's real easy to just like, you want to have place a Facebook ad, that's just tossing money in a hole you're never going to see again. Running a, a online publishing thing where you're, you're shipping out books, like I don't know anything about how to ship out things, how to keep good records, that sort of thing, keep inventory, like uh, run a customer. Like it just opened up a whole lot of, of uh, vulnerabilities. But I wish I'd done that earlier and been able to get over my fear of that. That's been really helpful. Patreon also. I wish I'd started a lot earlier and been a lot more consistent with the messaging. Like I... I did a lot of really cool stuff with Patreon, and it, it's, it's been enormously helpful to me. That's awesome. Well, something I ask every guest, and I feel like maybe you kind of covered this, but what is your own personal greatest money decision and worst money decision? Oh, man. I'm a... And greatest money decisions, I mean, saving up before I left DreamWorks was, was a big one. And also just starting the online store uh, and the, the Patreon, I think, are, are all the, the good ones and bad ones. And they're not the ones that I would still probably have made, again, given the, what I knew at the time. But some of the early forays I did into online advertising uh, didn't have much in the way of metrics attached, didn't have a lot of, of research attached and had very low return on investment. Um the uh, <laughs> I I had a promotion for the second book that um, had an alternate cover that was a little edgier than the the, the actual cover. The actual cover is uh, sort of a heraldry crest, like a coat of arms of a mother bear and uh, you know a, a child bear, a cub up at the the mother bear's uh, leg, and uh, it's, you know it's called Tough Mother. So it's 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 perfectly fine. It's not offensive. It's cute. But I had an idea that I really loved that I knew wouldn't work well at the mass market level. But I knew that like I had, I had faith that the the true faithful would really appreciate it, which was a uh, baby bottle with a flaming rag coming out of the top of it, like a Molotov cocktail, <laughs> um, which. I really love, I know it's super punk rock, but I know that like, you know, middle America moms are just gonna be like, what is that? <laughs> ah, no. So that's fine. So I, what I ended up doing was for a promotion for pre-orders, I made, I, I 
printed up in China a whole lot of dust jackets. There are these, these beautiful like foil embossed dust jackets with the alternate cover. That way, yeah, best of both worlds, right? Um, and it spurs pre-orders. And like, I figured, okay, I'm going to be at this for a long while. I, I do conventions pretty regularly. I can sell like 100 at a convention. I will just order uh, like enough for the next two, three years. And I spent a, a large amount of money on that. And then I found out that my publisher had given me old files and I hadn't double checked it before sending it out and that the dimensions they gave me were wrong. Oh, no. That's my and worst nightmare. It was like I have now like several boxes just sitting on my side porch where I have no idea what to do with them. Therefore, they don't fit. My publisher got back to me and told me that they gave me the wrong file like the day that the dust jackets got put on a boat going to LA. Oh no. And uh yeah, that's it it really it it crippled my plans for PR cuz suddenly I had to rush print a second set cuz I'd already started taking pre-orders and promised people and all that money was stuff that I was going to spend using on other PR stuff. I was going to do a whole viral video. And that just all fell by the wayside. And it was also just tremendously demotivating. And the whole thing, it just it put me in a funk. And, like, it really, it hobbled the launch of the book, mm. uh, I would argue. So that was, that was a very costly mistake. Oof. Return on investment on those things. Maybe you can turn them into some kind of cool piece of art. Sounds like it could be That's interesting. That's been suggested, but again, the, the amount of physical labor that would go into that yeah. just makes return on investment nil. <sighs> Jason, thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, super interesting and hopefully kind of your story of your creative journey in uh, and your dealings with money. Hopefully your openness will help some of our listeners. I know that we have a lot of people out there that are working on trying to make this work for themselves. Um, if folks want to get a copy of your book, Tough Mothers, Amazing Stories of History's Mightiest Matriarchs, where can they get it? So you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, I always recommend. Um, but if you want a signed copy, I sell them online, uh, rejectedprincesses.com slash store. But really, any of those, uh, just go for it. And uh, if you like it, uh, leave a uh, Amazon review. If you didn't like it, please don't leave a review. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I have enjoyed reading it thus far, and I can't wait to get my print copy. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Jason. Thanks for having me. Well, that wraps our show for today. I'd love to hear if you are a creative that's trying to make a living on the Internet, um, or even if you just have some really cool historical figures you'd love to see as animated princesses. Um, you can always write in to podcast at ohmydollar.com with any of your comments on the show. We love to hear from you. Our producer today is Will Romy. Our intro music is by Aaron Parecki, and I'm Lillian Carebank, your personal finance educator and host. Thanks for listening, and till next time, remember to manage your money so it doesn't manage you.